Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Richard and Leslie Strauss are here today. Richard is the founder and national executive director of Spirit Series, and Leslie is the national co-director. And they are a group that uh, brings drama programs to schools, mostly in California, but uh, here in New England as well, and some other places across the country. And uh, they have an interesting approach to education and how drama and uh, you know plays help in the education process. And I'll tell you more about them in a second. But uh, I wanted to first just sort of give you guys the update as to why education is interesting to me all of a sudden and sort of what's uh, what's developed in my life over the last couple of weeks. So as you may know, if you've listened to some of the other shows, I was laid off from my job back in March. Uh, it was a long time producing job that I'd had for about 15 years. And uh, now I'm at the point where trying to kind of start over and figure out next steps uh, in the course of everyone dealing with a pandemic. <laughs> and so that's been certainly a challenge. On top of that, I'm a parent. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. My four-year-old was supposed to go into preschool this year, and we pulled the plug on that, I think, back in May uh, at the time, just sort of realizing what regulations were going to be in place in the fall and that the preschool was going to really severely limit headcount. I think there were only like 10 kids per class, and we didn't need the child care. Uh, we were doing it mostly for social reasons for my son, so he could you know, go out and meet other kids. But uh, we knew that if class sizes were reduced, there were going to be people that were going to need those slots uh, you know, because they needed their kids to be somewhere during the day. And so we gave up our slot uh, so that another family could have it and you know, didn't want him kind of going into school, having to wear masks and stuff anyways. Uh, it left the question of what to do with my second grader. And uh, basically, to make a long story short, her school was only offering in-person learning uh, for this coming school year. And for us, in-person was just still something that uh, made us nervous, you know? Just the thought of, of a second grader, you know, being very aware of, of this pandemic, having to wear a mask all the time, having to keep distance from her friends. That was stuff that uh, we just didn't want it for our daughter. We wanted her to be able to to enjoy her childhood. And so we took stock of where we were at as a family and, uh, you know, realized that maybe the best approach would be for me to be her homeschool teacher this year and hope that the world returns back to normal by next fall. So that's sort of where we're at. I'm still going to keep doing this podcast uh, for as long as it feels relevant and <laughs> as long as I'm getting interesting guests to talk to and people are still tuning in. So this will kind of be my uh, my creative outlet. And then for the last you know two weeks or so, I've been homeschooling my daughter. So that has been an interesting challenge. It's been a fun challenge. I'm not somebody that uh, knows anything about education or ever aspired to be a teacher, really. So uh, it's been a whole new learning process for me and, and a fun one. And uh, it's part of what made me want to talk to Richard and Leslie today because their program, Spirit Series, is uh, it's really fascinating. They go into grades four through eight and do a three-week kind of intensive program with the students. It's a mandatory drama program where they're learning a play and uh, they actually have to stage it and perform it for the whole school and their family and friends and everyone. And uh, it's an interesting approach to sort of using drama and using art as a medium for teaching kids lots of things, self-confidence, teamwork, plus, you know, just history and language and all the other things that, that come along with this. And 
you'll hear in the interview too, they really do a great job of making these high-end productions that the kids feel really proud of in the end. And uh, so just that piece of it was interesting to me. But then the other piece that I think is really fascinating and really relevant for, you know, this audience is that like all of us, they had to pivot back in March when school shut down and they could no longer do in-person learning. There were teachers calling them saying, hey, we've got to do something here. How do we how do we keep the uh, the spirit, so to speak, I guess, of, of spirit series? How do we keep that going? And they very quickly figured out how to pivot and not just perform the plays over Zoom, but really deliver the same curriculum and build the same kind of teamwork and camaraderie and uh, confidence skills that would have come from the in-person program. And that was sort of the goal for me, you know, in starting this podcast was just there's this monumental challenge that we all have in front of us, right? Coronavirus, the pandemic, (laughs) school shutdowns, work shutdowns, all of it. How are we going to confront it? How are we going to get creative and find a way through it? It's different for all of us, but we all have to find a way through it. And I think those of us like Richard and Leslie that innovated, that took this time and took stock of what are the important things that they're doing and how do we deliver on that and how do we get to the core of what we do, even if lots of other pieces of it change, those are the stories that are fascinating to me. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to them. And now, you know, as a teacher, <laughs> I guess, at least for this year, it gave me a whole different perspective and uh, and different appreciation for all of this. So, yeah, I hope you get something out of it as well. And uh, there's a lot to learn in here. So here it is, my interview with Richard and Leslie Strauss. Uh, so I want to know first, just, you know, the question I ask everybody, I guess, is how has uh, how has this quarantine period been treating you the last, you know, six months or so? Well, uh, it's been the most demanding and the most exciting time I can remember in uh, the 20 years we've been doing this. Uh-huh. You know, basically, we had to reinvent the whole program in the last six months, which, you know, is incredibly demanding but also, you know, it's exactly what we actually were looking to do without even knowing it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we work in, you know, with students in schools. And fortunately, we were doing our our biggest residency of the year with about 300 students at one school. And everything got shut down in Los Angeles the day after we finished that last residency. Oh, wow. We're talking our people in classrooms with kids in costumes on stage and big audiences. And then boom, next day, everything got shut down. And so the prospect of how do we continue our mission when you can't, not only can you not have costumes and audiences, you can't even be in in school. Right. It's about, you know, what were we unwilling to give up? Because we knew we had to give up a huge amount of, of things. But we weren't willing to give up working with kids and getting the kind of impact that, you know, historically we have over the 20 years. So that was the challenge. How do we do that under completely different circumstances? Right. That is definitely sort of, I think, where everybody's mind is right now of sort of, you know, how do I strip what I do down to the basics and figure out a new path forward? But yeah, I would love to hear just sort of about 
you know, the, the beginnings, I guess, of the Spirit series and sort of, you know, why why you founded it and uh, and sort of what the goals have been over these last, you know, 20 plus years? Well, um, it was founded out of personal loss. Um, <clears throat> my daughter was about 10. I still get emotional <laughs> telling this story. My daughter was 10 years old when we lost her mom. Mm. And uh, those sorts of things, I don't know if that's happened to you in your life, but they really clarify things. Yeah. And I'm working in the entertainment industry, kind of being a spectacular failure in as a screenwriter, making a bunch of money. But nothing was getting made. Nothing was getting made. Yeah. And my daughter was asking the big questions in life, of course, and really trying to come to grips with why, you know, bad things happen to good people. Right. So I was haunted by this idea that I really didn't want to do, which was work with kids. I mean, I loved my daughter. I liked her friends, but I didn't see my life being devoted to working with children. And so I resisted it and resisted it and resisted it. And finally, I answered the call. And that was the smartest thing. Really, the only thing I take credit for in the whole 20 years is doing what I was called upon to do. And, you know, the the value of um, committing your life to service is something I really did not understand until all this began. So I wrote a play and it was actually the renunciation story in Buddhism, which we call Buddha Walks. And uh, 120 kids did it with my daughter, one of them at her middle school. And at the end, they said things like this changed my life. And I wasn't sure at that point that I would actually go ahead and do it. And then I faced the same choice that um, the Prince of India, Siddhartha, faced, which was would I give up my birthright and what I felt was mine, which in this case was working in the entertainment industry, in order to just step into the mystery and figure it out. You know, I'd never run a business. I was not an educator. I'd never raised money, um, never started a nonprofit organization, all of that. So it was uh, daunting. And I didn't get paid for the first five years and didn't really realize why the program was so impactful. And I think, you know, the message that I would give to others considering something like this is that you have to answer the call when you hear it. Mm -hmm. And when you feel it and ha and make a leap of faith. Yeah. When I think about, you know, my time in school, we certainly, we did plays here and there and they weren't, they weren't anything that memorable. They weren't anything that impactful. Like hearing those stories from the very first time that you did this and continuing on now for many years, like, what do you think it was about the way that you approach this that, that was so impactful on the students involved? And, and continues to be. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a parent. I think you are too. Yep. And so I knew how to communicate with my daughter and her friends, which is a, a big advantage as a writer when you understand your audience. Yeah. But what I didn't realize then, and I've come to realize, is that she wasn't the only person her age asking the biggest questions in life, that this is actually developmentally hugely important for kids from 10 to 14 years old. 
And societies have understood that since the very beginning of time, uh, initiation experiences in the Native American tradition or the bar mitzvah in the Jewish tradition. That, you know, the horizon line gets much, much bigger at that moment. And kids are asking the biggest questions in life. And when you address those questions, things get really serious in a beautiful, just a spectacular way. And so we use drama as a vehicle, actually, literally to do a kind of initiation of, of young people into young adulthood. Mm. And the stories themselves are about these heroic figures who model uh, a way of, of living life that's so admirable. So there are six plays currently. So Buddha Walks was the first one. We're working with a number of students now We on our play about um, the Chief Sitting Bull. Uh-huh. And so they learn about the four Lakota virtues of fortitude, wisdom, generosity, and courage. So they're not just doing a play. They are really taking to heart the lessons of these people. Also, yeah. every kid in a class does it. So, you know, typically in theater, in, in school, the kids who opt in to drama um, will do the, will do the play. Yeah. But here, there's a lot of students who, you know, could never imagine being in a play, and we cast by lottery. So well, we, you put your you name know. in the hat right, if you exactly. want to, play, you want to play the role, right? But invariably, the, you know, the student who gets picked is the one the teacher is just, you know, she or he rolls their eyes, you know. Yeah. They read three levels below their grade. They never attend class. Their behavior problem. Or they have learning issues yeah, or, they're or on whatever. The spectrum. And so... You know, there's these, there are just thousands of stories of transformation of these kids. And so we think, you know, it's because the stories themselves convey what you'd call moral character. But the doing of the stories requires performance character. Hmm. So, you know, these are heroes from history. And you have to be a hero to do this. Because when you get up on stage and you're performing this in front of your peers and your parents and your teachers and your whole world, when you're in, in sixth grade, you know, that pretty much covers it. Right. And, you you know, you've had three weeks to do this. Any, yeah, it goes, it goes very yeah, fast. Like any initiation experience in the ancient traditions, the uncles and aunts did the initiating. And, you you know, you push the kids off the cliff and they fly. You know, just they always fly. And they do it together. They're, um, and this is actually one of the interesting things that we had to figure out how to do, but in our scripts, they have all kinds of choral activity, tableaus or, you know, frozen actions that they do together in unison. We feel collective action is so important. And that's one of the things they, they succeed or fail together. And so they have this sense of doing something as part of a community. Yeah. If you think of the world they're, they're stepping into, if they don't learn how to work together effectively, there won't be a world sure you know and all of these things are not things that i understood when i first started this i you know i take no credit for most of this i just basically was haunted by this thing and started doing it and it's only later that i've kind of deconstructed why it works so well and what it actually accomplishes it's very you know holistic it's very whole child yeah and it works. Well, it's funny just in hearing you sort of describe it, you know, I'm nodding along and just saying, yeah, of course, of course, that makes sense. And, you know, the communal aspects of it and just sort of, you know, developmentally where kids are at that point. 
But mm-hmm. there's there's a piece of me too that sort of nagging at the back of my head that's saying, so why isn't this more universal? Why why aren't we doing this more in school or integrating this more into the curriculum? Why does it take you know an outside group like yourselves to come in? Like I, I wonder if you have a perspective. You know, you've been in so many schools over the years. Like why has our curriculum sort of drifted away from these things that, as you say, have been kind of humanistic values for, you know, a thousand plus years in some cultures? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I think it's it's not understood as a problem mm. in our world, although it is. It's a huge problem. Teen suicide. And I mean, you know, all the all the numbers. I don't have to go over them. From my point of view, I just came at it from outside the box and you know, I didn't have the PhD in education and I came at it as a parent and a parent in crisis. And so I understood that the thing my daughter needed the most was for me to tend to her spirit. And I think that's really now more than ever, boy, we really, really need that in our world. And and it's missing not just with our education system, it's missing across the board in our mm. society. We don't value that. Right. And, you know, the thing is, it's hard to test for. And I think that's another piece of it as well. Mm, You know, it's an interesting thing about COVID now, too. You know, there are many, many schools that want to have our program. And some of the obstacles that have to be overcome are, you know, the resources to do it and the time to do it when there's so much pressure to get kids ready for testing. Right. And we actually find, though, that after kids have done spirit series, the reading scores go way up because it's all about reading and comprehension and embracing. Yeah, what we call authentic literacy. Right. But, you know, these the things that are really important to our program, they're really hard to test for, and they're not on the current test. Right. And I, it'd be interesting to see now, yeah. I don't think they'll be doing so. Well, and there is, you know, there's a movement to, to you know, social-emotional learning movement, which is wonderful. And, you know, uh, because it's a whole child approach, it's very, very rigorous. These plays are written for adults. And this is what I didn't mention when I told you how the story began. The way I convinced myself to do it is to agree that I would not write for kids. Hmm. That turned out to be, that was the smart thing. And uh, we do these plays with adults. And, you know, the story of Socrates when we have friends or funders come in and they're in an inner city school in Boston or LA or something like that, and they see sixth grade kids doing Greek philosophy, it it just blows their mind. But the other thing that we have realized over time is that we ask far too little of our kids. Mm. If you set the bar almost impossibly high, they will reach it and they'll, they'll exceed it. You know, this story's have a lot of indigenous language in them. In fact, we're working with the direct descendant of Chief Red Cloud on the Sitting Bull story. And he's helped us with the pronunciation of all these Lakota words. And we put them all in that story. And incidentally, in that story, Sitting Bull is killed by his own people at the end of the story. And we don't pull any punches. And, uh, you know, there are, are very important reasons why that happened which we, of course, we explain. But there's nothing juvenile about this experience at all. The kids begin as children, and they end in three short weeks, we hope, as young adults. So we make it as hard as we possibly can. You know, I, I just in hearing that, it makes me think about, you know, the idea of sort of talking down to children and just sort of thinking about, 
just the media space, I guess, that it is very fragmented now that, you know, there are the Nickelodeons and Disney channels and things for kids, and there's sort of separate entertainment for adults. But if you go back, you know, 50, 60 years, there was one movie in the cinema and everybody went, you know, whether it was Ben-Hur or the Ten Commandments or West Side Story, you know, whatever it was, like the whole family either went to it or they didn't. (laughs) Like there wasn't this sort of fragmented marketplace in existence. And even just, you know, thinking about my own experience as a child and like, you know, going to, to family events or something. And often you're sitting at the table with a bunch of older relatives and they want to relate to each other as adults. And sometimes you have other cousins there or, you know, sometimes you don't and you're just sort of absorbing the adult conversation and listening. And, you know, like, I wonder if just when you talk about sort of not talking down to children and and not pulling punches, as you say, I think they are kind of ready for that. And there, there is, we've gotten away from that as a society, right? They're so hungry for this. Uh, it's hard to describe without actually having the experience in the classroom. They're so hungry for it. And, you know, I think, I hate to sound judgmental, but the vapidity of a lot of the programming for young people, the people creating that may think that's what kids want. But that's not what they want in the deepest part of who they are. Hmm. You know, they they long for engagement with the things that are really troubling them. And they don't even know they're troubled often until we get started. You know, what do you want out of life when you grow up? Is life fair? Um, Do you have a conscience? And if not, and if so, how come you don't always follow it? You know, these are well, the implicit questions. message is that we value your, you know, who you are and what you think. And we we know that you're mature enough to, to, ha- handle, to handle these questions and this material. Mm. Yeah. And they really respond. That's all we all really want is just to be acknowledged. Right. I, I wonder the the focus on sort of figures from history and across all cultures. But if you, mm. I think all of your stories, right, are are based in either people that have have really lived or you know stories that are real they're not they're not myth or yep. you know wizard of oz or things like that right. why why did you go in that direction of of sort of looking looking to real people in in these stories <laughs> well the um principal of my daughter's elementary school lost her mom when she was 8 oh wow and, uh, my daughter lost her mom when she was 10 yeah. and so they already very very close and um and i happen to love this principle and so when this idea was nagging at me she was the first educator i spoke to because as i said i i knew you know i, I was a consumer of public education yep. and a volunteer at the school but i had i was certainly not an educator and she heard me out and she said well this could actually work provided you do one thing and that's connected to standards, to state standards. Mm. You can't add to what the teachers already need to do. This is not an addition. It's a plug-in. Instead of teaching your normal Greek history, teach, you know, the story of Socrates, which is far more engaging. And in order to understand the story of Socrates, you have to understand it's the third act in the story of of classical Greece. So you have to understand the first and the second act and democracy and the Peloponnesian War and all of the stuff that 
that that the history teacher needs to to get at. Right. I just went into the California state standards and found that every sixth grader in California has to study the Buddha. But, you know, they do that in 15 minutes in a sidebar in their textbook, and that was it. And and so this instead is 15 hours of uh, their time. So it, it reconfigures the priorities for those schools and teachers that do the program. But it, and, you know, it turns out, and not by any genius on, on our part, that the program also meets a huge number of what are known, used to be called the Common Core Standards, but are now called the Career and College Ready Standards in English and Performing Arts Standards. So it gets, it, it, it's a very productive use of teacher time. And that's why teachers, you know, uh, adopt it year after year. Yeah, that's brilliant. All these different pieces of the curriculum can touch each other and can overlap and really complement each other that, you know, there doesn't have to be these these strict columns of this is math time and this is science time and mm. this is English time. All those pieces, they matter right. and they relate to each other and they inform each other. Um, and just realizing how fulfilling, I guess, that can be from the child's standpoint, right? Yeah, it, and, you know, there's self-reflection, there's journaling, uh, they write poetry to match the rhyme and meter scheme of a narrative poem that runs through the play. They do a fine arts project. There's, um, you know, an analytic essay at the end. There's a theory called multiple intelligences uh, created by maybe the preeminent educator in America uh, named Howard Gardner, who actually became a huge fan of our program. And um, I saw him speak at the very beginning of doing this, a year or two in, and um, I was so intimidated that I didn't go up and, and say hello to him afterwards. Yeah. But he said, you know, if you want to really communicate to children or to students, you have to approach them in a variety of different ways because people are brilliant in different ways. Mm. So people can access the material through art. Some people like the kinesthetic. Some people are analytic, you know, and so it has to be multisensory. And so, you know, I'm ticking the boxes off in my head. And he said, but none of that matters at all unless you're teaching values and ethics. Mm. So I vowed at that point that I would meet with him. And then seven years later, it happened. And he just became a, a huge advocate and one of the reasons why the program has been so successful. That's awesome. Uh, I'm curious just sort of that the change that you see in the students you work with over the it's three weeks, right? The program like yeah. talk to me about sort of, you know, the, the 10 to 14 year olds that you see coming in and and how they're transformed at the end of the process. You know, it obviously varies from group to group, but but overall, I think that it can be a little intimidating at first when students, you know, get cast in the play. And actually, sometimes they put their name in the hat and they don't realize quite what they're getting themselves into. So, you know, at the beginning, you might find there's they're a little bit intimidated. And I'm going to go a lot further than that. <laughs> okay. They hate it in the beginning. <laughs> yep absolutely hate it because they're being required to do it most of the you know there's that study uh, i don't know it's probably apocryphal but they ask 100 people what do you fear more public speaking or death 
and 79% of the 79 people said public speaking. Wow. That would be my experience. So it's a culture far removed from their own, typically, let's say, you know, Greece or the Native American culture or the Mesoamerican culture or, you know, ancient India. Well, then also you're talking about, you know, sixth graders, seventh graders, and they've a lot of the whole don't look at me, you know, right. that whole kind of. Yeah. And so they hate it in the beginning. And they're in, enormously resistant. And that's all part of the initiation pro process. You know, what Native American wanted to, you know, wanted to ride into battle and count coup on their opponent, on their, you know, and risk their lives. Nobody wants to be initiated, but we all require it. And it has to be difficult and off-putting on some level in order to be powerful at the end. So it's a journey. Right. And some of the strategy sort of early on is when I talked about the cues that they do together, when we have them do, you know, get really excellent at that and have all kinds of things that we do to help build, you know, help empower them, help to feel like, help them feel like they can master this thing. Yeah. And so that gets, gets yeah. integrated every, early on. Every piece of the curriculum is designed to create what we call self-efficacy, which is empowerment yeah. is another word. You know, even highlighting the, the, your lines, there are ways of doing that. And we figured this all out. I mean, you know, I can't even tell you how many classroom hours of instruction we've had. I, I'd have to figure it out. But, you know, you figure it out over time and you figure out how to maximize it and how to make the experience as powerful as possible and, and rewarding. So slowly, 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 they get their arms around it. They understand the play. They feel the empowerment to do it, and they climb the mountain. And at the end, they are just like, you know, that's the that's just so rewarding. And to see I've noticed, their on, joy. yeah, on performance day, you can always sort of tell how it's going to go. You walk in, you set up the auditorium, and you can sort of feel the way the students walk into the classroom, and they see that we've set up the stage, and they see that the costumes are all lined up, and it's palpable. Mm -hmm. They're they're excited and they're nervous they're scared and yeah. you want both of those things yeah. and you know they're going to they're just really going to bring it and yeah. then when it's all over you know it is just riotous the kids are so so right. proud of themselves and proud of each other and you know one of the things we've done it, by working with some friends in the entertainment industry is to create visuals and costumes that are really quite extraordinary yeah. and so along with the play, every single thing they see tells them that they're being cared for and respected and that we believe in them. And, you know, one of the things we teach our staff is commitment. That's one of the attributes you need, which is an unwavering belief in those that you're leading. In other words, they're going to throw up all kinds of roadblocks typically out of fear. I don't want to pretend that this is a, an easy thing for our lead, for our you know our team to do our staff it's it's very challenging because the kids act out right. in a big way out of fear and we understand that and we meet that with with love and support and also unbending uh, requirements you know you're not going to throw a temper tantrum and get out of doing this yeah and and that's uh i think enough people don't realize that that is something that that kids really need all, all of those things you know they, they need to feel respected they need to trust the people around them 
And they also need to know that they're being held to a high standard. <laughs> we have an advantage to be coming in from the outside. So it's, it's special. Yeah. It's not just their teacher putting out, pulling out a new book or whatever. In fact, that we found our way to um, uh, an anthropologist who wrote a book on ritual, which of course is how we create meaning in life, all of us humans. Sure. It turns out, according to, to this study, that there are three things you need for a ritual. It has to be a bounded group. So there's us and then there's not us or them. It has to be out of time, which means it's not business as usual. And the third one is the one I love the most. You have to change clothes. <laughs> so it turns out that those were all things that we were able to accomplish with the onstage version of this. And we had to find um, equivalencies in the on-screen iteration of it, yeah. the, the, the digital iteration. Yeah. So let's talk about sort of that pivot, you know, like, uh, like all of us, we were, uh, you know, thrown this curveball of, of coronavirus back in March. And, uh, you know, it's been interesting just to sort of see how different people have adapted and sort of, you know, I feel like there's there's been a tendency with some people to just say, I miss the thing that was like, how do I get back to normal as quickly as possible? And then there have been other people that have said, OK, here's where we are now. We've got to sort of redefine everything. And, and it sounds like you guys fall more into the latter. Is that is that fair? Not in coincidentally, we teach the Buddha and the concept of impermanence uh -huh. and non attachment So, of course, that suited us quite, to, quite well. <laughs> yeah, and the you know the other thing that we teach not not avowedly, not by name, but in, in all the things we do, is what they call in the child development world and education world positive growth mindset, which is basically turning challenge into opportunity. Hmm. So uh, the very first thing our staff did, and this was just, this came out of a collective impulse, is to start to write and record three to four minute personal stories that were prompted by the attributes, like Leslie mentioned, the four Lakota virtues. So, you know, one of the first sets of stories was around courage. And every person on our staff wrote a three or four minute story and, you know, other people on the team would edit it. And then we created a, a, you know, a video protocol of how to record them. And we built and are still building this whole different part of our curriculum, which basically pairs the whole moral character piece of this down to the bare bones, which yeah. is you know, every one of these attributes that we celebrate in the heroes from history, there are now three adult stories. And we've widened this out from our team to include friends of, of the program as well. And so eventually there'll be 72 of those stories. We're, we're about halfway done. And it's, right a, it's a library on our website and it's called Spirit Series at Home. Uh -huh. Because in the spring, they're really, you know, Obviously, we weren't going into any classroom and we couldn't even try to do it online right. initially because teachers were just trying to figure out how to survive. Yeah. So we wanted to offer something for free that anybody could do with their with their families. Yeah. And then and then the, the families or the students respond with their own video story or uh, 
piece of artwork or essay on the attribute. And we've done that with about, in, in a week or so, it'll be about 200 uh, kids so far that we've, we've done that with. That's before we got into what we call Spirit Series on Screen, which is actually delivering the full curriculum on Zoom. That happened, as Leslie said, when teachers started to contact us and ask us if there was any way we could deliver on our on the commitments that we had to, you know, stop right. when uh, when things shut down, then that's when it got really interesting yeah. for us. Because we really, you know, when you when you just think when you think about, it, I talked about, you know, that the kids couldn't do these cues together. Well, right. how do you? They're all they're all going to say something together and say it loudly. But because and do of an late, because of latency issues, you know, on Zoom, if you try to have five people say hello together, there's just no way of doing it. Right. So we wound up doing it. It turns out that when you do things visually, it's it's a lot more forgiving. The ear does not like to hear things more than a microseconds, a few microseconds off from one another doesn't feel like unison. Right. But it for some reason that I don't understand, we're a lot more forgiving with our actions. And so we turned, you know, we just do a lot of tableau and a lot, you know, variety of different group actions and and then the theatrical backgrounds, the, the, yeah, the so virtual backgrounds. Right, we had to make up for the fact that they wouldn't be in costume, although we mm. have them all performance day, they have to wear black okay. so that everything's fine. But then we kind of leaned into, okay, well, what does Zoom give us that we wouldn't ordinarily have on stage? And so we started uh, both finding and creating these very rich backgrounds so that we could change, you know, change the look of everything you every, know, every, yeah. every scene or, and, or, or, or within, a, within yeah. a scene. Yeah. And then we, we created a center image that was kind of visual counterpoint and didn't have anyone in it. And the director is, is manning that center image and changing images in counterpoint to the images that are behind all the kids and then tiling them on in a very particular uh, way. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because, the, because of everybody's different internet uh, speeds and kids drop off the call and then they have to come back on, you know, all those things that in the, you know, the earliest moments of it, we thought, oh my God, is this going to work? We decided, okay, well, how can we turn this into an advantage? It's almost impossible for, for us, given the population we're working with, to do a play from beginning to end on Zoom uh -huh. because you have to because stop the, yeah, technology. Um, tech, because of the technology. Someone so, falls off the call. Right, you know. Got to rearrange everything and but so, so then we realized, well, now, wait a minute, we're not doing a play, we're making a film. Mm. And of course, stop and start. And, and then we could, it gave us the opportunity to edit it together and, and, put, put, and put music on it and yeah, do all kinds sound of effects fantastic and, things yeah. that then the kids would have as a memento. You know, mm. what was an ephemeral experience in school is now this this thing that they get to keep. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that people don't necessarily understand, and of course we all do since we are on Zoom, but you don't think about it in a teaching context, is that Zoom is actually very intimate. Mm. It's called distance learning, but that's actually not, you're, you, as a teacher, you're closer to the faces of the kids when you deliver the curriculum than you would normally be 
when you're up in front of a classroom. Right. You're just looking right in their eyes. And so, you know, we had to reduce the, the number of kids in a cohort because, you know, after 15 or so, the boxes are too small. So we take a normal class and divide it in half, let's say. But then you can make very, very direct connection with them and them with, with each, each other. other. And yeah. then in the siloed world we yeah. live in, you know, that that's when we did do pilots, which we did four of in the spring of this, that was the universal feedback we got, which is that this this was filling a huge need in them for community and connectedness and you know, shared purpose right. at a time when they were so isolated. Yeah, one of the things that really stays with me is that we, one of the groups we worked with, they were all, you know, rising seventh graders that had been, you know, through the year together, but of course hadn't been with each other for the last couple of months. They performed, they, they, they made their film the last day, and then we asked for shout outs, an opportunity for them to say what they liked or compliment each other. And every single student found another student to shout out and was very specific about what that student did well. And it was a student who hadn't been shouted out yet. Yeah. Oh, wow. So we didn't we didn't set it up, it, but it was they all knew intuitively that they had climbed this mountain together and every single person was valued and they wanted to acknowledge each other. It was incredible. And these are 12 year olds. It was wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I, and it's it's so interesting too because I just, you know, in hearing sort of at the beginning of this when we were talking about what the last twenty years have looked like, and that sense of community and that sense of we're all in this together and sort of building that resiliency together, I could imagine that getting lost in a Zoom world and just yeah. you know feeling very isolated. And it's just interesting, sort of both how you guys have creatively figured out ways to get that back as you say through through movement instead of through dialogue um, yeah but then also how it's sort of sprung up organically it sounds like too yeah i mean you know like everything about this particular chapter in my life there's there's a mystery in it and i mentioned that before you know um we're just showing up every day but what i find for myself is that creativity is largely receptivity hmm. you know like having it come to you. And um, I, I think, you know, I've learned that the hard way over the years. And I think that is really what happened in this case, which we certainly didn't set out to do this. We just confronted problems and then, you know, answers would just sort of show up, um, you know, and sometimes we would, we could think our way through to it, but a lot of times it would just you know, you just kind of get a brainwave. Or sometimes you have to sort of be, you know, be in the mystery of it and and trust that a solution will come. Mm. You just have to trust that it will. Yeah. yeah. It's a little uncomfortable, but yeah. it, but <laughs> but things do show up. Yeah. It's it is it is sort of the uh the mantra of this time, I guess, is just, you know, we know we're in this and as you said at the beginning, I mean my my initial thoughts as to how long we'd be in this was, you know, by May or June, maybe things would be back to exactly. normal. <laughs> now it's yeah. starting to feel like, you know, maybe fall of 21, you know, spring yeah. of 22. I mean, like, you know, it's it feels a long way off. And and it makes me wonder, I guess, sort of looking ahead to this, this school year that's just getting kicked off now, uh, you know, it, it is such a hodgepodge across the country between virtual learning, in-person learning, some sort of hybrid model. How 
what are your plans, I guess, for this upcoming year? And, and how do you imagine, you know, supporting students during this time? Before the pandemic, we already realized that in order to bring this program to scale, we would have to empower classroom teachers to be able to do it. So we were already heading to what we called, for lack of a better word, Spirit Series Digital. Uh So, you know, creating a portal where teachers can go and, and we would lead them in an asynchronous way through the whole curriculum with their students. And it would end in a reader's theater that hopefully we can live stream to other, to the parents and other classes in the school that are doing that. So along with the at home and the on screen, which is synchronous where our leaders lead either the kids in silos like they are right now in California, each in their own home, or live stream leading them in the classroom, like in Massachusetts, where other kids are going to school. So, you know, it can look in any of those ways. We're not at all convinced that we're, since this is based in California and most of our work is here, about a third of it is is in New England, but most of it's here. We don't imagine California schools being in a full open mode probably at least until the spring. So we're putting our costumes in mothballs and all of that. You know, we're not expecting that. But the combination of the either doing the at-home curriculum with students where they just respond to our stories, doing it on screen with our leaders, and now we're quite far along creating the first version of the digital curriculum for classroom teachers to lead their kids through the program. So that's where we're headed. And that's why it turned out that it was an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, as I said, I feel like there are there are people that have met this challenge head on and, and figured out how to make that pivot and just really lean into the change. And it sounds like you both are doing that. So um, I thank you for uh, for sharing your story with me. And, you know, I, uh, I wish you continued luck with uh, with this coming school year. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a strange one, but it sounds like you're uh, you're up for meeting the challenge. Well, yeah, thank you, Keith. It's you know for for being interested in in hearing our story. All right, there we go, Richard and Leslie Strauss. It was good, huh? Learned a lot. Loved it. You can learn more about the Spirit Series on their website at spiritseries.org. Check that out, and uh, you know maybe have them come to your school. All right, let me tell you about Thursday's show real quick before I go. Thursday, I am talking to actor John John Briones. I am so excited for this one. He is in a new Netflix series called Ratched. Uh, it's based on the character of Nurse Ratched from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I hadn't ever seen Cuckoo's Nest, and I watched all of Ratched, and I understood it and loved it and just thought it was phenomenal. Sarah Paulson's in it. Ryan Murphy's one of the producers on it. The guy that does American Horror Story and American Crime Story and all that. So it's phenomenal. And uh, John John is uh, he's a Filipino American actor. Uh, you may know I'm Filipino, so it was really exciting to get to talk to him and uh, hear his perspective and talk a little bit about Ratchet, which is coming out uh, at the end of the week on Netflix. So come back Thursday to hear that interview, and uh, you know subscribe. You'll be the first one to hear it. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. 
drop me a line. Let me know uh, what you guys are thinking about these days. I'm going to go do some teaching now. (laughs) Have a great day, and uh, I'll talk to you on Thursday. Stay safe.